right, just before we... Uh... Just before we pray and plunge in, I just want to underline, underscore an invitation that you have received and uh, add my encouragement to it. This Friday evening and Saturday morning, Sam Alberry will be here with us. I trust that you've heard that. Sam is an Anglican uh, rector in London. He is a writer. He also has been attracted to members of the same gender since he was a teenager. And he lives as a single man, pastoring in the life of Jesus' church, believing that when he said yes to Jesus, the whole of his life, including his sexuality, was surrendered to the authority and the kingship of Jesus. And he is a man that speaks with clarity and with compassion and robustly theological. Um, He is one of the clearest voices in the life of the church, equipping the church to understand how to think about and speak about and how to engage with our culture as it relates to gender and identity and sexuality. It is a profound gift that Sam is going to be in this auditorium on Friday night and Saturday morning, and I really don't want you to miss it. So if you're around and you've got time, please make that a point to be here. You won't be disappointed. I think it's going to be a really fruitful time for us as a community. We'd love to see you here. So let me pray for us, and we're going to dig into this text together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that in a world that is marked by chaos, we see it globally, we see it historically, and if we're honest, we all see it personally, that the world is chaotic. I'm thankful that in a world like that, we don't have to wonder what you're like, we don't have to wonder what you're doing, we don't have to wonder what you're saying, because you are a God who speaks. You're a God who's revealed yourself to us in a way that can and will give us direction and clarity and hope and power if we will pay attention, if we will listen, if we will wait on you. And so I pray this morning that as we dig into this text that you would be doing that sort of work for us, helping us to be the sort of people that have clear perspective even in the midst of chaotic circumstances. Do that by your spirit, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Any of you familiar with the, the work of a, a graphic artist from the Netherlands named M.C. Escher? You know M.C. Escher? These mind-bending artwork that he has done and is famous for. He died in the 1970s. His work is still celebrated all around the world. I want to just show you a few pictures. This is, this is one called Waterfall, notably. That makes sense. Um, but the interesting thing is you sit and you look at this drawing. What Escher is doing is he's playing with us the people that are engaging with his art. Because as you look at this, it looks like the water is both flowing up and down simultaneously. You're left wondering, well, which direction is it going? I don't, I don't fully know. And then in another one, he, he does the same thing, but this one's called ascending and descending because we've got men that are both climbing stairs and going downstairs, and we're not sure which is which and when it switches and what's happening. That Escher is playing with us because he is toying with perspective. It feels really chaotic. It feels like it's folding in on itself. One other example is this one called Relativity. Because there's no horizon line, we're not sure where to look, where it starts, where it ends, who's going up, who's going down. You see, Escher was, was an artist, a mathematician that played with the minds of those that engaged with his art because what he was displaying it was when our, when our perspective is unclear. He's drawing these photos with three points of perspective in a way that leaves you 
confused. It feels chaotic. It feels unclear what is actually unfolding all around you in this, in this piece of art. And in many ways, life as an exile that we've been charting along with Daniel, it feels like that. It is chaotic. Daniel, Daniel's journey has been one where he's confronting a world where it's not always sure which way is up and which way is down. That he has for years lived at distance uh, from home, and we've been making the argument that we likewise are men and women that are exiles and strangers and aliens. And in the midst of chaotic circumstances, the question is, how do we continue to see clearly, and how do we continue to move forward when the circumstances, if they're determining how we're going to make sense of the world, we're left going, well, I don't know which way's up. I don't know which way's down. I don't know, which, I don't know who's going where, but Ultimately, what we're going to see this morning is this, that for Daniel, he had unhurried time with God that we talked about last week as we saw the way that prayer shaped his life. This week, we get to turn the corner to, from Daniel 6 to Daniel 7. We're moving out of narrative. We're moving, moving into apocalyptic literature. And this apocalyptic literature is his prayer journal we're actually going to go back in time about 20 years from last chapter, and we're going to start seeing this man who's been so faithful in the midst of really chaotic circumstances, we're going to start seeing how he maintained a clear perspective in the midst of that. Because the truth is, to remain faithful and to flourish as an exile, it doesn't primarily require that our circumstances change. It just requires that our perspective is clear, strong, divine. And, and what we're going to see by studying the prayer journal of this faithful exile is that there, there are some things that are unlocked in the unhurried while in the presence of God. Divine perspective that he delivers as he reveals himself that will steady and secure our souls even in the midst of the chaotic circumstances. And there's nothing else that can provide it. We're going to see that this is in part what has been carrying Daniel through now as we get to see. It's almost like the secret sauce We've seen this man be so faithful in Babylon and beyond. But now we get to go back to his secret moments with God and go, oh, this is why you have remained steady and calm and faithful and fruitful when everything felt like it was coming apart. We want to explore that together. One note before we plunge in. This is apocalyptic. And apocalyptic literature is kind of weird. Okay? It's a little weird at first blush. This is an apocalypse. It just means a revealing or an unveiling. So the idea is that God is pulling back the veil and saying, peer into glory with me. See what's actually happening in the divine realm. And because we're not used to seeing those sorts of things and experiencing those sorts of things, it can be a bit overwhelming. We see this in the book of Ezekiel. We see it in the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature that is also often delivered in visions. It's things that they're seeing, they're watching, they're perceiving. And so in the midst of seeing these things, it's almost like kaleidoscopic visions. Like when you wake from a series of dreams and you're trying to make sense of it and you're like, well, I was in my house and then no, all of a sudden I was on the highway and cars were flying by and my aunt Judy was there. And you know, it, it, dreams feel that way a little bit. They're kaleidoscopic. It's like, oh, I saw this. And I saw, I'm not sure how it all fits. And, and so we're being invited into that world. And in that world, we need to let the genre shape our interpretation so the note I want to make at the outset is this. We have to be really careful about not over-interpreting apocalyptic literature. 
Oftentimes we want every little detail, if we're not careful, we're trying to make every detail mean something. And even in this text in the second half, which we won't fully explore, but is informing the way that I'm teaching it, is in the second half, an angel is actually giving divine interpretation of the dream and speaks in big, broad generalities of this is true. So in some ways, apocalyptic literature is kind of like a parable or a joke in the sense of the way the genre is to be read. It has a punchline. It has a purpose. And if you try to, if you get lost in all the details, you'll miss the punchline. So we're going to do our best to try to make sense of the dreams and visions without over-interpreting. And it's more art than science. I'm not proclaiming to be perfect at this. I just want to let you know this is how we're going about it. You with me? We good? Okay. So why is it that we so desperately need a perspective adjustment? That's the first thing I want to articulate. Why do we need a perspective adjustment? And then secondly, we're going to talk about what happens when we get divine perspective. So first off, why do we need it? It's because when we just look at the world, it feels like chaos reigns in this beastly world. That's what it feels like. That's what we're going to see in Daniel's vision. Look at it with me. It feels like chaos is reigning in this beastly world. Look at verse 1 and 2 to start. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So we're back to Daniel being about 60 years old. We've just gone back in time. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. And he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Just one note. I love that we learned last week that Daniel prays three times a day. He peels back and he loves God's presence. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you want to encounter God even when you lay in bed at night, be so enthralled with him during your waking hours. Let him arrest your imagination. A man that prays all day long, all of a sudden when he lays down, what else is he going to dream about? <laughs> it's what fills his mind and heart and God is speaking to him even while he's laying there. He's laying there recognizing that a new king is in town and the empire that he's been serving and what we learned in the previous chapters is this is not a good king. He's going to lead to the destruction of the Babylonian empire. So Daniel's laying in bed and he's considering this terrible king. He's realizing that he has given his whole life to serve Babylon and now Belshazzar is on the throne. Verse 2, it says this. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now the context of his apocalyptic, apocalyptic vision is the winds descending on the great sea and the sea roiling. It might look something like this picture, maybe a little hard to see. Uh, yeah, thanks for dimming those lights. You can kind of make it out a little bit. But what we've got there is out in the middle of the sea where the waves are crashing. This image in the Old Testament and New Testament is a typology for chaos. This is the role that the sea plays in the biblical mind. The idea being that for the ancient mind, you consider looking out at the ocean when the waves are churning and there's unrest and they're going, it's so unstable. What causes the waves to churn? What happens underneath the surface? It's all so unknown. And for the ancient mind, this was the picture of chaos and unrest. This is why in the new heavens and the new earth and Revelation, it says there will be no more sea. I don't think that means that we won't get to go to the ocean. I, I, I hope that we do. I think we will. I think, as best I can tell, is that it's, it's a note that's saying the chaos and the unrest will finally be over. You see, this is a thematic element in the scriptures that here's Daniel and he's like, okay, he would understand this is the context of this vision. The winds are coming down and the sea is roiling. He's already keyed in chaos. He may have laid down already aware chaos because he lives in the midst of Babylon and Belshazzar's on the throne, but now God's about to speak to him about what's happening. And out of the chaos, what he sees is this. 
It's beasts on parade, one after another. And I just want to look at them quickly because I'm sketching out for us. What is the nature of the chaos that he's, he's being introduced to, that he's aware of? Look at verse 3 and 4 with me. It says this, four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. One's going to be worse than the next, okay? It says the first was like a lion and it had eagle's wings. And as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and it was made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. Okay, so the first beast is introduced. And by the second half of the chapter, we learn that each of these beasts is a king and a kingdom. We don't know exactly what they are, but we have a pretty good sense. And I'll tell you what most commentators agree on. In verse 3 and 4, we get this picture of a lion with eagle's wings. In both Isaiah and in Ezekiel, the kingdom of Babylon is referred to as a lion and as an eagle. And so it's pretty clear we're talking about Babylon. He's being introduced to chaos, and it's like, oh yeah, I already know this beast. And this beast is certainly in the midst of chaos. Daniel's aware of this. You also get a nod, it seems, to what happened with Nebuchadnezzar when he became beastly and then got his mind back. Did you hear it there? He says he's been plucked up and given the mind of a man so it could stand on two feet. It seems that in these two verses, it's kind of catching Daniel up of like, here's the kingdom you've been a part of. This is the kingdom that reigns currently in the chaos of the world. But as Daniel's laying there wondering, and what's going to happen to Babylon, God begins to show him. You see, the history of mankind is just one beastly kingdom after another. Because <laughs> here's Babylon, but in the next verse, look, in verse 5, it says this. And behold, another beast, a second one, was like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise and devour much flesh. So it's like this monstrous bear that's big on one side and has three teeth, already, three ribs already in its mouth. It's finishing its last meal, like polishing off the last carcass. And there's a word from heaven that says, arrive and devour much flesh, like stay at it. As best we can tell, this is Medo-Persia. This is the kingdom that comes right on the heels of Babylon. We just read about it last week with Cyrus and Darius, whether or not that's the same person, we don't know, but the, the rulers in the Medo-Persian empire that they've conquered and they're reigning. They think it's bigger on one side because Persia was stronger than what was going on in the, in the Median empire and the, the Medo part of the empire. So they, uh, because of that, and then it devoured much flesh because it was a very aggressive empire. So catch this. He's starting to feel the chaos of the world. The seas are churning. One beast is in power. Another's coming, and it's going to devour. And then the next is the uber leopard. Look at this. He's like, if you, if you thought that was crazy, just stay with me, Daniel. After this, I looked, and behold, another. It was like a leopard, but it had four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. The emphasis here is on speed. A leopard is a very fast land creature, but as if the speed of the leopard is not enough, it's given wings, and as if that's not enough, it's given four wings. So it's like speed, speed, speed. And as best we can tell, this would be the next kingdom that comes, which is Greece. Alexander the Great conquered the known world by the time he was 33 years old. And when he died, interestingly, this beast had four heads. Four generals took over and led in different areas the, the Grecian Empire. Now, this is pretty clear, it seems. There are some alternative interpretations, but trying not to overinterpret the details, it seems at minimum what we're seeing is one king and kingdom after another. And then the last is worse than all that have come before. As best we can tell, this would be Rome that comes on the heels of Greece, and it is, uh, it is the longest reigning and most devastating of the empires. And this is the way it's described as the mega beast. 
You see, it's not going to be compared to any animal you've ever heard of because he's going, you've never seen anything like this. Verse 7 and 8, it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left. Later in the chapter, it says it has bronze claws. It's metal, and it's kind of this amalgamation of both beast and creation, and it's destroying everything in its wake. It says it was different than those that had come before, and it had 10 horns. Now, that could be that there were 10 prominent kings in Rome, which there were. There were a few minor kings along the way. It might just be a statement about the power of the beast itself, that a beast's horns represent its power, and this one doesn't just have two, it has 10. It's like 5X, right? I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn had eyes, like the eyes of a man, and it had a mouth, and it was speaking great things. So do you, f- you feel the dream, dreaminess of this, right? You're like, yeah, then there was a beast, and it had horns, and it had another horn, and three of the horns were gone, and this horn had eyes, and it had a mouth, and it was saying all kinds of stuff. And He's trying to make sense of it as he's laying on bed, in his bed, and what God is doing is he's saying, look, here's the history of mankind. One chaotic beast after another causing heartache and tension. This is the world. And the last, the pinnacle of all this beastly activity that's causing the unrest is this little horn. And the little horn is one of a couple of people. Some say it's already been fulfilled in a man named Antiochus Epiphanes that in the second century BC wreaked way more havoc and chaos in Jerusalem than had ever been done before. He slaughtered pigs in the temple and put them on the Holy of Holies. And he made the people stop keeping the feasts and festivals and they weren't allowed to read the scriptures. He wanted to destroy the covenant people of God in a real way. If you're interested in that story, that's partially where the the brothers, the Maccabean revolt came from and ultimately Hanukkah that gets celebrated by our Jewish friends. Some think that was the picture of the little horn. I'm more prone to believe that it's actually a picture of the end time, that Daniel is actually talking about the scope of human history, and by the end, you get the sense that he's actually talking about a final leader that represents all the bad leaders that have come before. Many think that the little horn is a picture of the Antichrist, also called in 1 Thessalonians the man of lawlessness, that there's one that's coming that's going to kind of imbibe and and embody the full spirit of the chaos of the beasts of empire throughout history. One that's going to raise up and make great claims about himself against the kingdom of God. Now, we know that the spirit of Antichrist, the New Testament says, is present and has been. And so there's some that we could say there's been multiple Antichrists, those that stand against the character of Jesus in the world. But one day there will be one great leader. And we think maybe this little horn is a picture of that in the Old Testament. Regardless, what's the punchline so far? The punchline is this. Chaos seems to reign in the world. It is a beastly existence. And before we just move right past this, stay with me for a second, because it's easy to think, oh yeah, Rome, Greece, Medo-Persia, ancient history, or deep in the future, some antichrist, and whatever that's going to mean. Let's just pay attention to this. In Psalm 73, Asaph says this. He says, Lord, I've been like a beast before you because I look at the evil of the world and I long for it. I was like a beast before you because I see the spirit of Babylon in the world, sex and power, 
self-exaltation, money and riches. And I, I've actually been like a beast before you thinking that those things could satisfy me. And in Psalm 73, he says, it's not until I go into the presence of God and consider him that I have my right mind again. What I want us to feel is this. The reason we need a perspective adjustment is because we live in a chaotic, beastly world. And the beasts are on display globally. Whether you live in Moscow or Beijing or Washington, D.C., it is beastly at a global level. And the way that that pain is worked and the way that empire works throughout the world. It's, it's the nature of the history of humankind. And if we're honest, it looks back at us at times when we look in the mirror as well. Daniel is in the midst of this reality of, okay, it seems like chaos reigns in this beastly world. He needs not just a shift in circumstances, but a clarity of perspective. Brothers and sisters, you need the same and it's only going to come by the unhurried while, going and soaking in the presence of God. And this is what Daniel experiences in the coming verses. And what I want you to feel is this. We're going to explore what happens when all of a sudden you get the perspective adjustment, when you see clearly. And there's a few things that are going to flood in quickly. So we're just going to look at a few verses, and I'm going to try to give you some rapid-fire things that come as an adjustment of our perspective in a beastly world. You with me? Let's look at verse 9. The first thing that floods in in the unhurried while in the presence of God in the midst of chaos is this. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. I love this. He's introducing God as the ancient of days. What a title. What he's not saying is that God is old. What he is saying is that God is eternal. God does not experience time as a progression of moments one to the next. He experiences time like this, all present simultaneously. He is present eternally to all that is unfolding immediately in his presence. Chase, he already sees you in glory. He sees you perfected in the presence of God, even as he sees you currently, and even as he saw you as a child, and even as he saw you before the foundations of the earth. He sees it all simultaneously. What this means is that if the Ancient of Days is on the throne, and in this moment where the veil gets peeled back in this apocalyptic vision, what he's realizing is there's no surprises. There's no surprises. The things where we want to wring our hands and go, oh, it's chaotic, it's beastly. I feel it in my family. I feel it in my nation. I feel it on the planet. And he's going, listen, listen, listen. I am the ancient of days and there's nothing surprising me here. I'm not caught off guard. You see, the first thing is that as we get God's perspective, we realize that there's no surprises, but that's directly linked to the next one. There's no worries. Did you see the posture of the ancient of days? Did you see it? He's seated. He's chilling. <laughs> The Ancient of Days takes his seat on the throne. It reminds me of going to visit my papa. My papa was in the Battle of the Bulge, and his feet actually froze in the Battle of the Bulge. So he, he at times, oftentimes when I go see him, all he wanted me to do is to rub his feet at night. Because, oh, 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 they ache. Jeremiah, will you rub my feet? And I'd sit there and rub his feet and talk to papa. And uh, I remember when I go see him with, like, middle school romance issues, you know, Ariana Ill, Britton Grogan, who's, who likes me, who doesn't like me. My joy was dependent on that on the day, and it felt like the biggest thing in the world until I was with Papa. He's laying there. His blood pressure is just the lowest in the room because he's seen everything. 
my feet froze in the Battle of the Bulge, man. You know, like, I've been around. And all of a sudden, I'd be so, ah! And then I'm sitting there rubbing his feet, and it's like, his calm and his perspective, I was like, oh, this isn't that big of a deal, is it? <laughs> I came in thinking it was. Felt pretty chaotic. And what I realized is that uh, we may go, yeah, yeah, that was just middle school romance. But do you know what I'm dealing with? Well, infinitely more what I experienced in Papa's presence. When you come into the ancient of days presence and he is seated on a throne, he's going, just slow down for a second. Just take a deep breath. Just sit there and look at me sitting here. My low blood pressure will start to influence your blood pressure. Let's all just take a deep breath because the Ancient of Days is seated on the throne. You see, there's no surprises, and for that reason, there are no worries. And not just no worries, I love that the way that he did described in the second half of nine and the first half of ten. There is no impurity in him. I want you to feel this. It says this, the hair of his head is like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. What in the world? Its wheels were burning fire. I love this. His throne has wheels. God's got wheels, and they're fire wheels. This is not just like a static throne. This thing is on the move. It's like a chariot. He is dynamic and powerful. This is like the ultimate hot rod, you know? Literally, he is on fire. He's got wheels. And then it says, and a stream of fire, like a river of fire issued from him or was coming out from before him. Now, it, it in part reminds me of like Henny Penny. You know Henny Penny? She's the one that had the acorn fall and hit her on the head. And then she went, oh no, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. And she ran around and convinced everyone that the sky was falling because the acorn hit her head. I think in part, when we consider our world, we feel like it's coming apart at the seams. It's not the way it used to be. Family values aren't cherished the way they were. And and I, I don't mean to make light of any of this. I just, it's interesting, like when I read Jonathan Edwards several hundred years ago, that's actually what he was writing about, that these young kids and their dating and the way that they're interacting, like the, the family values are evaporating. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that we all in our own time think everything's coming undone. If it were only like the 50s or the 1850s or the 1650s or the 14th, and actually if you went back to every person in every era, they're going, yeah, it all feels chaotic in every season. And we think the sky is falling and impurity is gonna reign. And then all of a sudden we see the one on the throne and he's like, fire is issuing out from him and he is in pure white. And he's going, listen, impurity is not gonna rule the day. Purity is going to tell the ultimate story. The sky is not falling. You see, no surprises, no worries, no impurity is gonna win the day. And by the way, verse 10, you're not alone. Look at this. It says, a thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. This is the angelic host, flaming beings by the million. Daniel has been working in the courts of Babylon and he has been believing at times, no doubt, I'm all alone. Nobody believes like I believe. Nobody stands for what I stand for. I'm all by myself. And then all of a sudden God says, take a deep breath and just look. Millions encircling you with great power worshiping the king. It reminds me of Elisha in 2 Kings 6. He was surrounded by the Syrian armies. Do you remember this? And his assistant was by him. He's like, oh no, we're done for the armies and the chariots and all of their weapons. And he prays and he goes, God, would you just open his eyes for a moment? And all of a sudden he looks and he goes, ah, oh, 
fiery angels and chariots all around him. And he goes, those who are for us are far greater than those who are against us. You see, whatever the chaos feels like, God's inviting us into this place of going, it's, it's true that the circumstances are challenging and they're pressing in on you, but you don't need the circumstances to change. You need your perspective to shift. You are not alone. The angels see you and they fight for you. You are covered over by heavenly realities that are unshifting and eternal and pure and powerful. And for this reason, there is no disorder. Did you see it in the second half of verse 10? It says, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So here is the judge. He is on his fiery hot rod chariot with rivers of fire and everybody gathers around. This is that moment where they say, all rise, the honorable ancient of days is in the court. And they say, court is in order, right? He opens the books and all is going to unfold according to what has been written. There is no disorder. There's no disorder. When we have the proper perspective, all of a sudden we go, it feels so chaotic. My life, the world, all of it, history, what are we doing here? And God's going, court is in order and everything is unfolding according to the books. There's no disorder. And there's no defeat. (laughs) So this is great. Look at this with me. So verse 11, it says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Now, let me just set some context. Do you remember in verse 8 that the horn was speaking? This little horn popped up, and he had eyes and a mouth, and the horn's just going off and going, oh, look at all these great things. And it was in that moment where the horn, which we said is the pinnacle of wicked leadership, likely the Antichrist. So imagine the moment where the worst, most powerful leader is on the planet, threatening the people of God, wearing out the saints of God. And in that moment, all of a sudden, Daniel's eyes are on the Ancient of Days. And he's seeing him with fire and purity. And then verse 11, it's almost like he goes, oh yeah, you're still here. (laughs) The little horn with all the great things that you were talking about. Oh yeah, yeah. It's almost like the little horn has become the teensy weensy little horn. (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, what was that you were saying about how great you are? I almost forgotten because old fire chariot showed up, right? Like the adjustment of perspective, no matter how bad the leader, no matter how threatening the situation, all of a sudden his great claims like, wee, 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 wee. he's like squeaking like a little ant yelling about how great he is. And he, in one verse, God defeats him. Did you see it? It says the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and it was given over to be burned with fire. It reminds me of Revelation 20 verse 9b, half a verse. You read the whole book of Revelation and you're waiting for the moment where Jesus and Satan are finally gonna duke it out and it keeps like, there's this thing and then there's the next thing and the bowls and you keep waiting and then they finally meet and you know how long it takes? Half a verse. Jesus consumes him with the breath of his mouth and he's done. We are not afraid. The chaos doesn't reign. The circumstances don't tell our story. There's a grander, better, truer perspective as all of a sudden the veil is peeled back and Daniel goes, oh, how has Daniel remained faithful for seven decades? He is very well acquainted with the unhurried while and the presence of God going, ah, yes, I remember. And the beauty is that in all these denials, the denials, he says, no surprises and no worries and no impurity and you're not alone and there's no disorder and there's no defeat. And then right at the end, you get a few beautiful affirmations. Look at them. We get a humble king. 
and a perfect king and a perfect kingdom. Look at it. I saw, I saw in the night visions, and behold, what, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Oh, I love the phrase. You know, it's Jesus' favorite phrase for himself. He calls himself the son of man 81 times in the Gospels, and it literally just means son of Adam. It's like a guy. That could be the title. It's a guy. Here's the Antichrist. I'm so great. Wah, 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 wah. You get how he's Antichrist? Jesus shows up on the scene and goes, I'm just the son of man. But he's the first and only true man ever. The only one that lived up to God's design for humanity. Humble, yet perfect. And the way we know the Son of Man is perfect is it says that he was presented before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days just consumed the beast by the fire that is coming like a river from his chariot. But the Son of Man is not afraid. He's pure and holy and very well acquainted with the glory of God. And he steps boldly into that space, humble and perfect. And what is entrusted to him in verse 14 and then again in verse 27 is a perfect kingdom. It says it was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom and peoples and nations and languages that were going to serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom shall not be destroyed. And at the end of the chapter, it says this, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Listen, Jesus is the great son of man that wins the final victory over all the beastly enemies of the world. And how did he do it? How did the humble, triumphant son of man secure this victory for us? The only true man who's ever walked the earth became a beast. He became a beast by confronting the beast. It was actually Rome itself that was thronging Jesus. And as he bled and died on the cross, it says in the book of Isaiah that he was marred beyond the semblance of humanity. It means he didn't look human anymore. And as he groaned from the tree with his flesh tattered, it didn't look human. The only one that was a true man was reduced to a beastly reality. And three days later, conquering and resurrection power, what we see is the true man exalted into his pure resurrection form. And this is the good news. Did you hear it in verse 27? The kingdom isn't just entrusted to the son of man, but it says there's many thrones and it's entrusted to the saints. Listen, brothers and sisters, by your trust in Jesus, daily setting your gaze on him, Developing divine perspective that outstrips the chaos of the current circumstances. What he's doing is he's transforming you from one degree of glory into the next, shaping you into genuine women and genuine men that are royal. You will reign with him forever. The scriptures say you will judge the angels. I don't even get it. What I know is this, that God has glorious destinations for humanity in him. And what he's saying is, hey, listen, Let's not let the current circumstances tell our story. Take a beat. God's going, pull aside. Let me pull back the veil. Look at what's most true. Do not play scared. Do not wring your hands with worry. 
there are no surprises and there is no worry and there is no impurity that's going to tell your story and there's no defeat ultimately because we know the reigning king. Listen, we don't need our circumstances to change. We just need a perspective adjustment. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, who is like you? Who is like you with all power and authority, standing boldly before the ancient of days, yet willing to give your life for us? Thank you. There's no one like you. In all the beastly history of humanity, there's no one that shines with the beauty and glory and humility and power like you. You are the great hero of humanity, and we set our gaze on you. We thank you for what you've done, and I pray that we would live like this is true, that we would not be afraid, we would not be worried, we would not run around thinking the sky is falling, but with confidence we would set our gaze on you, we would love your presence, and we would live like fierce, faithful, flourishing exiles far from home for your glory and for our joy. Amen.